0: But a lot of people, they explain their style and what they want. Sometimes they think that they know what they want, and then I'll show them something and they're like, that's actually what I want. So going through the mood board yeah. process helps the clients look at a visual and nail that down. So usually I pick an inspiration picture, either one that they sent me or ones that I've found while looking um, for inspiration myself, and then I'll go from there to picking out selections of tiles, the different maybe bed frames or um, vanities, just all that. So we go through like, for example, the kitchen. We'll pick out the countertops, the pendants, the bar stools, um, the color of the cabinetry, all that stuff for a mood board. And we will go through that as many times as we need to make sure the client loves the kitchen that they're gonna be getting.
1: I'm excited to talk about interior design. Uh, The subject for today's webinar is what role does interior design play in designing and building a custom home? Meg, let's start with your background before anything else. Let's talk about who Meg is. You came from an accredited design uh, college in Kentucky. Tell us about uh, your background, who you
0: are. Yeah, so I grew up here in Merida, Georgia, lived here since I was two. So very familiar with the Georgia area. Um, My senior year of high school, I decided I wanted to be an interior designer. I did not know growing up that I wanted to be that. My mom is a realtor, so just going, and like I would go with her when she showed houses and whatnot, and just seeing the inside of houses made me excited. Um, So then that's how I decided to go into the interior design path. And then I applied to Kentucky, and they have a really good interior design program that you actually have to apply to get into the interior design program within the whole university. So I did that um, and then I went through four years of school. That is actually a commercial interior design program. Um, So you learn a lot about codes and all that as well as just the basics of interior design throughout. So being an accredited university means that every four years um, people will come to make sure that you're qualified, your school's doing the right credentials and all that. Um, so that's how I'm an accredited interior designer.
1: Awesome. Uh, that kind of answered my next question, which we'll get <laughs> to in just a moment. But as far as your entry point to Raynard, uh, you joined us as an intern while you were still in class that was in 2020. So almost two full years, you've been working with us. Uh, you took on some interior design projects as an intern. Uh, those were some paid projects that you got to be involved in. Um, We brought you on full-time in May of 2021. So you are approaching your year anniversary this spring as a a full-time interior designer with our custom home company. So I'm really proud of you and proud of all your accomplishments and uh, how far you've come in that uh, two years that we've known you. So uh, my first question along the lines of an accredited uh, interior designer, what does an accredited interior designer usually do on a custom home project? So what is your role basically when we bring you into a design project from the very beginning?
0: Yeah, so I'll just walk through my process. So I start off um, as a kickoff call with the clients and I talk to them about what they want to see in their interior design and in their home, um, their dreams, their visions, and just listen to them and describe basically what they're looking for. And then from there, I'll go through and do mood boards um, after they send me inspiration pictures or existing pictures of their furniture home that they're currently living in. Um, And some people just wanna completely redo their whole style so they'll just send me new inspiration pictures. Um, And then from there, I'll create those mood boards that I was talking about. Um, We go through as many of those as we need to to knock down the style. And then after that, we move into specifications. which is more of a selection process. So we go through and we go shopping for those selections, looking at countertops and tiles, hardware, sinks, all those important factors of the interior design. And then after that, I'll go into renderings based off of the floor plans that James has created. Um, And I can help him space plan as well as we're going through, just that there's certain pieces that y'all want to keep in there. I make sure I include James on that. Um, and then I use his floor plans to create those renderings that give you a visual of what your home will look like in a 3D perspective. And then from there, you get the specification sheet with the um, all the selections we've made. And then we'll also do a furniture selection sheet at the end if you need new furniture, um, just where to get it and how much it's going to cost and all that stuff that you'll need. Right.
1: Awesome, so uh, if I was gonna break it down, I'd say sounds like you're saying the first process is style, uh, coming up with a, a mood, and we use mood boards, we call them mood boards to nail down like our likes and dislikes kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yep. So so first we, we nail down a style, get an aesthetic kind of naming things. Um, then you said specifications, and I'd like to dig in a little deeper on what is in the specification sheet and why is it so important? Um, You mentioned renderings and that's a visual aid that really helps with Here's what that future home is going to look like pre-construction so we can unpack that maybe a little bit But is that fair? Is that the three main parts of your process is uh, mood board specifications and rendering?
0: Yep. Yes.
1: Okay. So talk to me about the mood board part that's how does that inform design? Like, what are we looking for when we have those conversations? Um, is it just pretty pictures? Are we like, why not just go into Pinterest? I mean, what are you accomplishing, hoping to accomplish through the mood board process?
0: Yeah. So a lot of people they they explain their style and what they want. Sometimes they think that they know what they want and then I'll show them something. And they're like, that's actually what I want. So going through the mood board yeah. process helps the clients look at a visual and nail that down. So Usually, I pick an inspiration picture, either one that they sent me or ones that I've found while looking um, for inspiration myself. And then I'll go from there to picking out selections of tiles, the different maybe bed frames or um, vanities, just all that. So we go through, like, for example, the kitchen. We'll pick out the countertops, the pendants, the bar stools, um, the cu- color of the cabinetry, all that stuff for a mood board. And we will go through that as many times as we need to make sure the client loves the kitchen that they're going to be getting.
1: Yeah. And what I think is really helpful is defining terms during the process, because um, I know some clients of ours that are joining us. They they started the conversation with the term traditional. And um, I also remember words like colonial. Um, I'm thinking of. Uh, some good friends of ours who just got started on a project and she has a really distinct eye for uh, things that she has in her existing home, uh, collections, um, uh, very specific types of furniture and very dis- uh, specific types of colors that are going to really uh, bring this home to life. But when we say colonial, when we say traditional, when what how do we take that word and give meaning to it so that because traditional can mean a lot of things, right?
0: yeah so So, i think i try and take my idea traditional and then present that to the client and then their vocabulary based off that helps more identify what their traditional looks like versus my traditional or someone else's traditional like it all everyone's value and idea of a style can be different so just the mood boards really help to define what that actual client's style is
1: yeah so if we say red uh, there's a lot of shades of red. There's a lot of shades of green. How are we picking the right one? So, um, you know, I have a uh, image in my mind when I say stage green, and, and I want to see that with you and go, yes, that's what I mean by stage green. Or uh, cl- I think it was colonial blue is the uh, recent ones that I really liked hearing from some of our clients. So what do we mean by colonial? You know, getting, getting defined terms is, is really important. And it sounds like those mood boards help attach those, that, kind of like creating a glossary that so we kind of agree on on what we mean when we say something yeah definitely so let's talk about the specification sheet um that's a to me that's a really important part of helping a client stick to their budget um because really what we want to do i want to create an interior design plan that they cannot afford because that's not fun for anybody so <laughs> What, what? how do we make sure that we're selecting things that can actually fit the budget? Like what does the spec sheet do for that?
0: Yeah, so the layout of a specification sheet usually has a few different um, columns. So the first one is the image of the product and then it's gonna be the product number, which actually only like places like Home Depot and stuff still have product numbers. A lot of people don't even use those anymore. <laughs> um, if you
1: needed one, it's an easy way to yeah. find it, or a skew or something.
0: Yep. And then you'll go to the product um, color and then we'll do the price, the quantity, which we'll get from the square footage or if there's like one or two vanities in the bathroom. Um, and then we will also do the, uh, the link to it so that the contractor can easily go find it um, and purchase it on their own too. And then when it comes to the budgeting factor of it, um, sometimes the contractor will be very good at being like, this is where I'll source the countertops to keep in that budget. Cause usually, um, the builder and I have a good relationship of knowing wh- like where to s- specify things from and where to go get them. Because obviously I'm not going to go look at super high end places for a client that's in a mid range. So one of our builders, um, Kenneth Johnson, which a lot of you all probably know he's very good at being like, okay, this is where I'm going to source from. This is what I've estimated in their quote for. So that's how the specification sheets work.
1: Yeah. And that, and that's really important. The distinction that you just made. So um, Kenneth does work on a lot of our projects as a uh, pre-construction consultant. Um, Some of our clients have their own builder and that's totally fine. But what we, that gap that you're bridging that you just described is really important. I think, because if we don't have that communication, with somebody who's helping us source materials, then we're making a bunch of suggestions. <laughs> and then they're either going to go look, look at our suggestions and interpret it, or they're going to go just do whatever they want and whoever they have a relationships with already. So it's very important to know like which vendors, I think, um, which vendors is that contractor already comfortable with working with, or which vendors do our clients like already. Um, so they can let us know, hey, we do want to, Um, look at these types of catalogs because that's what we found that we really like and can afford. Um, Uh,
0: But yeah, what else about the... Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Another thing uh, to be careful with is like some builders will go and take our specifications and put that in your quote and some people will just give you a flat rate. So if they're doing like a three foot or $3 a square foot tile, um, they may or may not let me know that it just depends. And if they don't, then your price might fluctuate a little bit, but I obviously am still not going to go do like a 30 square, $30 a square foot tile for y'all either. So just something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. I think the point is just that that process of developing the specifications is not, it shouldn't just be a suggestion, but it should be something that's well thought out between both the and the uh contractor as well as the design team and when those three parties are working really well together and then the other party would be of course the vendors that are selected that we actually get materials from um, i think that's what kind of makes a winning strategy you know when everybody's communicating really well so we do encourage people to um get their builder involved early whether they end up building with them or not having somebody on site or on the project who can assist with that with your designs is, is crucial i think um, so let's also talk about renderings, because I love the renderings that you've done. Um, they're on our website on a few projects that that folks can take a look at. But um, why are those so important? What do they do for the, the design? And what are you hoping to uh, accomplish through producing them?
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of times clients have a hard time visualizing just from looking at like a 2D view of like the yeah. materials and everything. So the renderings really help visualize what it's going to look like as if you're pretty much standing in the space. And when it comes to the furniture aspects of renderings, I'm going to they're not completely accurate because it's you can't just get 3D models of every piece of furniture out there in the world. <laughs> but for right. the for the countertops and the tiles and the colors, paint colors, all that, it's really accurate for you to be able to tell what it's going to look like in a space. So if you're debating on green countertops or cream countertops, I mean, cabinets. (laughs) Um, That is a good visual for you to be able to be like, okay, I actually do like that. Um, Or for tiles, for example, large format, small format, some clients don't really know what they want. So then you look at a 3d rendering of your space that James has created. And it'll make you be able to visualize it way better than looking at it on a sheet of paper. So
1: yeah, yeah, and what, what I hope that people experience what I well the reason we wanted your renderings is so it can be immersive. You know the the renderings that you've put together look as close to a photograph as as possible that that we can create, and they're based off of uh, architectural drawings. So uh, the space should present a pretty accurate depiction of what you've been drawing up through the architectural design process. So. That's that's another question I had for you. Why, and I'm kind of leading the answer, but why is it so important for the architectural designer and the interior designer to work together on a project?
0: Yeah, definitely to make sure that the style is going in the right way because a style can be from a floor plan and to a like selection. So an open floor plan that could be more modern, traditional could be more closed off. So I think us just working together and like also like the pieces of furniture um, that also needs to make sure it fits in the space. So me and James collaborate on that really well, to make sure what we're picking out is going to fit within the space.
1: Yeah, and and James actually chatted in a really good point, which I think is is good to bring up is that uh, a rendering will uh, help a builder understand the context of the design. So what do you, what do you think James means when he says that, Meg, uh, as far as the context of a design?
0: I'm, I'm reading it again. <laughs> um, I think also because a builder could look at my specification and not really realize how it's supposed to lay or something. So seeing it visually right. could also help a builder know like the way it's supposed to lay or, um, the dimensions of something just like seeing it in a space could also help the builder
1: absolutely so if if a builder can also see the visualizations he has a chance to speak up and be like i wonder if this is going to work in execution or i have questions about this but if he understands the intent of the design that puts the builder in a much better place to execute in a way that reflects the client's desire not kind of him just phoning it in because we have had that problem too we actually had a client who we designed for um they took our plans and went and found a builder later. It's, it's, it's kind of like a lesson learned because that's not how we prefer. We prefer now to partner with builders early, but we had that client calling in the middle of construction saying, my builder is doing something totally different than what the plans say. And there was a disconnect between what he thought was possible and what we had designed with the client. And so we had a little bit of back and forth. It took a matter of just getting an engineer involved and just answering a question for the builder, but it could have been avoided if the uh, builder understood the context of what the client was trying to accomplish instead of just kind of shortcutting the process. So that's a long answer to say renderings really do help not just the client understand what they're getting out of the final build, but it also helps the builder understand what the client is trying to accomplish so that he can execute properly on that.
2: Um,
1: So Meg, I did want to ask the more questions that weren't necessarily on our script. I hope you don't (laughs) mind. I said, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Meg likes it when I put her on the spot. So (laughs) what, when you encounter um, a, a style or an aesthetic that, that may be new for you, what's your approach at like, how do you handle the process of um, somebody coming to you with some ideas that maybe you're not familiar with or that, that are new for you? Like, what would you do to engage?
0: Yeah, I think this also um, kind of goes into play with something that I didn't realize until after college that I it was a kind of a gift of mine, I think, is ne- not necessarily my the style that I'm drawn to, like, I'm good at doing all different styles, which I was kind of, that was something I was scared at. Um, first starting in the interior design world was like, well, if it's not my style, like, how am I going to execute it? And I think that's something that kind of surprised me was like how I can like pick together different styles. Um, and I think that if there's one that I'm not positive on, like what, what this client's going to want for sure. I think I go, I really am good at going and researching it and just playing off of the research. And then also I go back and forth with my clients and making sure that that's what they want. Um, So I think it's just really a playback for, for my clients. So just going back and forth and just making sure that that's exactly what they're looking for. And they can tell me, no, I'm fine with people telling me, no, I want you to tell me no, (laughs) and tell me what you like. I want you to love it at the end. So I think we're really just piggybacking off of my clients and the research I've done.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and it's like when do you speak up you know i think the more you understand what somebody's really after because you do as a designer sometimes you do push back and i and i'm thinking of one of our clients in particular who really leans on you and um i remember a couple times we were out together and she would look at you and go meg what do you think (laughs) (laughs) and if you gave her the thumbs up yeah if you gave her the thumbs up she'd go with it if you said no she she'd say all right i trust meg um. So that is earned, but I also think um, the reason you're in that position is because you understand what she's trying to accomplish. Yeah. And so the more you understand what somebody's trying to accomplish, how do, you, how do you take lead?
0: Yeah. I think also just like knowing that I have my client's trust really helps me be confident within the project. And then it does help me take more lead of them have, letting me have that flexibility because it's kind of a part of my job to be like, I think you should go with this, even though you might like this way. I think that this is the direction you should go. And it took me a little bit to get there, but I think I am in that place where I feel confident enough to um, kind of push back a little bit. I mean, if you are very like, no, and that's not happening, then okay. (laughs) I'm going to at least try and push it on you. Um, So I think just having that trust in my, from my clients helps me a lot with that.
1: Yeah. And we, and we always say design with not design for. So because of that nature of our relationship it's going to be not combative or or friction but there's going to be like the the good tension between like ideas that the client comes to you with and what's going to actually work um because you but the again i think the more you understand what people are trying to accomplish that's when you know how to how to direct them to something that's achievable Uh, because I, I know my taste personally as, as Jack Baldwin, I know what I like and dislike, but I'd have a really, really hard time coming up with a concept and a design of like how to match all the stuff that's swirling around in my head into something that, that works. And I've seen you do it. I, I saw it, you know, even from Griffin's room when we walked into that, when he got his dream room made over, like you really understood what, what was important to him and, uh, and executed on it. So who would have the supervisory role in the process to ensure that the builder is following your design, who's going to take lead and say, this is what we designed here. That's, (laughs) that's what we're going to execute on.
0: Yeah. Um, I think probably me and James both have a pretty good say in this when it comes to the building process and when it starts going, um, if something in the architectural area is going wrong, James will probably step in and be like, wait, that's not what's on our plans. Um, And then when it comes to me, if they're laying um, herringbone flooring when it's not supposed to be like, then I'll step in. So I think it's just a group effort of making sure everything's going as planned.
1: Yeah, and and we've talked about uh, doing some site visits too at crucial points during the construction. Uh, That doesn't take up a whole lot of our time. And uh, we can certainly uh, go out and uh, schedule times, not surprise appearances, but s- schedule times to go visit construction and ensure that that's happening too. That's actually uh, something that we've uh, started rolling out with our builders.
3: Um, I wanted to add a little bit more technical sort of answer to that. Um, to answer. Yes, please. So, this is one of the reasons why we bring builders on early in the process. Um, so we all understand where we're coming from from the design point of view so with Megs presenting mood boards or interiors we don't want to surprise the builder right at the end so they come back and say hey we can't do this or there's a cheaper option but it looks completely different or any of those sorts of things so that would create a clash between the build team and design team so having a build team chosen whether you're using someone that we know and can reference them, or you have your own builder or your own um, subcontractors to be building it yourself, Um, bringing them in early is really important. The other thing that can help in this situation is also making sure you have a signed contract with your builder, right, with clear roles defined in it. So your builder will give you a contract, um, probably, hopefully, before you pay the money that you will sign, um, and that should define what their role is in it they will also kind of define that they will take um, the lead role of building it out. So any changes will go through them, which is absolutely fine And you kind of want them to do it because they're the ones who are actually building it. So that's why communication is so important. So it's a collaborative sort of role. Meg and myself can only supervise what we can supervise. The builder goes out and builds it without telling us or something along those lines. We can't do anything about those sorts of things. So communication is really really important so we avoid any of those clashes or conflict
1: yeah that's a really good point and you know it's it's not that we want to put ourselves in a position to babysit a builder or follow up on their work it's it's really that um we're willing and able to do checkpoints but but what's more important to james's point is to have a good communication and good re- relationship established with the builder um before you even go to start you know breaking ground and, and and building this house uh delise uh, is designing a home up in ella Jay, and she has a really awesome design concept for an a-frame that she's uh, going to be building and so she's got a question she's doing a very small home up in the mountains of georgia Ask her question and delise if you'd like to uh, elaborate please do but let me uh pose this to meg how is designing interiors any different when it's a small space. Um, so I guess she's giving at built-ins, you know, for example, are those better to help maximize footage? But let me add a little bit to that and just say, Meg, what? how does that affect your thinking or your space planning when you know that you're designing for a small space? And then Delise, if you'd like to um, chime in after Meg answers, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. So I think I actually think designing a small house is actually pretty fun. Um, you can be really creative with it. Um, When it comes to built-ins versus like regular pieces of furniture with like vanities or anything like that, I think it just really depends on if you need custom sizing, whether it's gonna help with the square footage or not. Um, If you want something really small and we can't find it, then obviously built-in route is the way to go. Um, If it's like a regular sized piece of furniture and we can find it and you like that, then we can put that in. If not, we can just have your builder build that. Um, And then, what was the other part of the question? Sorry, Jeff. Uh,
1: just, just how do you, I guess, how does your approach toward design change if you're uh, designing for a smaller space? Are there things that you would, would do differently in a small space versus maybe a larger space?
0: Yeah, I don't think that my perspective or um, way to go about it changes much unless it comes to picking out the sizing of things. Um, but when it comes to the style and all that, I still take the same approach. Um, obviously what I'm picking out is going to be smaller than I would pick out for a bigger home, but besides that, it's the same approach to every other home.
1: Nice. Delise, would you like to follow up on, on, uh, Meg's answer there?
0: No, that, that's good for me to know, Meg. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I, I have HGTV overload, so (laughs) obviously you're (laughs) watching people design small spaces. The thing about a small space, I don't want it to feel small. Yeah. all, but i don't want it to feel small you know i still want the the furnishings to feel luxurious so to know that your approach is no different is comforting thank you yes of course
1: good that's a great question delise thank you because we do have people who are thinking about maximizing their space and their budgets and so uh we don't we want to see that as a welcome challenge not something we want to run screaming from so uh, awesome. very good question uh thank john you. Yes, thanks Elise. John had a question too. Uh, He is designing a home in Woodstock, Georgia. We're really excited about getting started with him very soon. Uh, I'm going to read John's answer and John, please chime in after Meg answers. How might you design for multi-purpose? So for instance, if we were wanting to have a guest space, which would largely be unused, but want to build it for a hobby room and not. So it sounds like uh, John's asking, how would you plan space that um, may have dual purposes or more than one purpose? Um, Is there a design approach you would take towards something like that, like a shared space?
0: Yeah. So if you're wanting it to be like a guest room where someone can sleep in and also a hobby room, we could take like a Murphy bed bed approach or a sleeper sofa approach to that. Um, And if you want it to be like a game room, obviously you can't put a pool table in there if you put a Murphy bed in you're not gonna be able to move the pool table but if you do like a foosball table you can move that easily um and put the bed down so just thinking of different furniture pieces that can be multi- multi-used um i think that that would be the approach i would take on that
1: what about colors and materials would you think more neutral um more durable for example
0: yeah probably more durable for sure if it's going to be like a highly used um game room area or something but I also when it comes to color, that's also a um personal preference. If you want like an accent color in there to make it fun and have a pop of excitement in there, then we could do that for sure. If you want to keep it more neutral and calming, then we'll do some neutral colors. So
1: yeah, John followed up on wall beds or Murphy beds. Uh he said he's seen them in photos, but uh I've seen them in execution. I I think they looked great. It's it's just kind of about the mechanism. What are your thoughts, Meg?
0: Yeah, I think that they look good. Um, and we've—I actually had a neighbor that used to have one, and they're pretty easy to just take down and pull back up. Um, and you could also probably have your builder, builder, build in some custom shelving next to it or something, so it looks built in and like a piece of furniture and not just a wall bed. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> Or or loft lofting spaces. We've the cabins that uh, James designed in Cherry Log had some really cool. Ah, uh, loft spaces that could be dual used as dually used as well.
2: I had also was wondering about the wall beds because I've seen some really good ones and I've seen some really bad ones. But um, I was just wondering if there's any like design trends coming in twenty twenty three since we know styles always change. Um, do you have anything that you know of that's trending right now?
0: Yeah. So I think overall, the cozy lived in homes are more of a style right now that we're seeing instead of the open floor plans. Um, and it's more like cozy furniture rather than like the sleek hard-looking furniture um so that's like the overall trend that i'm seeing but then also like the black accent walls or just black accents in general or darker accents um some natural materials like people are using more stone and natural woods um countertops quartz, and um then there's also statement lighting that's a big one and people are using lighting more as like art now instead of just like recessed lighting they're using like big chandeliers pendants um people are using sconces a lot more like next to beds and all that right now um also i think this kind of plays back to the cozy um idea but having like a home retreat instead of like a home so it's more like a retreat where you feel like in certain rooms you might be getting away um like if there's certain rooms you don't go into every day, you go in there if you want to have like a nice like read, reading nook or something. So just putting like some retreat feels within the home and then mixing metals is another big one. So a lot right now I'm doing a lot of mixed blacks and golds um, if it comes to hardware or lighting, anything like that. So those are some trends that I'm seeing.
1: Awesome. Very informative. Uh, Stephanie, for those of you who don't know, she is our newest interior design team member. So she will probably be working on some of your projects and you may uh, interact with her. We're really glad to have her on our team. So thank you, Stephanie. That was an awesome question. Thank you. I got a couple of questions from uh, Jitin and John that I'd like to get to. But James, you had your hand raised. Uh, Let's get to James real quick.
3: Yeah, and you don't have to answer this now. Maybe we can come back around to it, but um, I know one of your favorite things is going furniture shopping with clients and going out and looking at countertops and things like that. Um, I was just wondering if you could walk us through the process of that and, you know, how you get together with clients and meet at different stores and maybe how many stores you go to. Is it furniture? Is it manufacturing places? That sort of thing.
0: Yeah, so I think selections is the main thing that I do with my clients. Um it's probably the most valuable time. Um, and how we, we don't do that process until after we do the mood boards and we've looked at countertops through pictures and everything. And then we kind of have an idea of what we're looking for in person. So then we'll go through and look at countertops in like the big format picture. And then we'll also go and look at tiles in person. Um, cause you can see the textures and the real colors then. So I think that's really helpful. And then when it comes to the furniture shopping, um i'll go out with clients but it can be a long process so sometimes i'll send them to go to certain stores and sit on things just because when it comes to furniture if you're picking out a couch you don't want to buy a couch you've never sat on before and you don't know it's comfortable so sometimes i'll send them out if they want me to go with them i'll go with them um so that just depends with the furniture aspect but I'm more than happy to do that because I do enjoy that time with my clients. But. You
1: do not have to twist Meg's arm to go shopping <laughs> with you. That is for sure. Um, I did. This is kind of out of order, but it's, it's relevant to what you just said. So uh, Billy uh, asked about favorite stores in the Atlanta area for a mid-range budget. Since we're on that topic, I wanted to jump into that question. Do you have some favorite stores that you'd like to... Um, and and by the way, we have no paid sponsorships. We have no interest <laughs> in... Uh, who you shop with, but um, so we really want to answer this objectively. But yeah, Meg, who do you like?
0: Okay, so this is also mid-range can be different for everyone, but <laughs> when it comes to yeah. the lower range, I would say home goods, those types of places, um, sunny and rainy is a good one. They have um, donated furniture from like West Elm and all those places. Um, so those are good places to go for that. And then when it comes to um mid-range, I would say Pottery Barn, West Elm, um, places like that. And then for higher end, I'd say Our House, um, Crate and Barrel, Outrageous Interiors is more of a buti- boutique one um, in Georgia. And then Dutchman's is pretty high end, I would say too. Um, they have some mid-range stuff too there. So I would say those are some examples that I have off the top yep. of my head.
1: Right now. And, and since you know a lot of these shops, when somebody comes to you with say hey i'm looking for modern mid-range you you probably already know something if somebody's saying more traditional we're thinking of like some nice boutique antique stores perhaps um that we could find and 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 then um yeah so i think understanding what people are looking for helps you kind of guide them to where they want to go shopping glass elevators elevators in the home are these things that are cost prohibitive are these things uh, people are starting to uh, go towards elevators in the home. Meg, what are your thoughts? James, you might want to chime in too.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll chime in a little bit and then I'll send it over to James. Um, I think we are seeing a lot more elevators in homes, um, especially because custom homes, I feel like a lot of people are planning to retire on them. So if you're building a two-story home, you're going to want access. If if hopefully not, but if it gets to a point where you can't go up and down stairs, you have that transportation um, Elevator that you can make it from floor to floor, but James, I'll pass it to you for the price. Are they,
1: are they, yeah, that's the thing. Are they too outrageously expensive, James? The, I know that technology's come a long way, but
3: it's it's hard to pin it down um, because there's, there's a lot of variables. Obviously, an elevator is a big big expense um, just generally, but if you would compare, say, you had an elevator that was like three feet by three feet. That's comparable to a really nicely designed staircase going over three floors, say. It's still it's more efficient to go up and down in an elevator, but you still need a staircase. You can't just rely on an elevator in case it breaks down. So it is an added expense. When it comes to a glass elevator, we haven't dealt with any yet, um, specifically glass. We have done typical elevators, residential ones. Um, I would imagine that they are even more expensive um seeing as though you can't hide any of the mechanism behind any of the framework so a lot more is exposed and then glass itself especially because it would probably have to be tempered or safety glass in that sort of respect is more expensive than just typical single pane glass or anything along those lines so i would think that they would be expensive but if you have the budget and you wish to have one you can definitely start looking at different suppliers that will do it. There's plenty of those guys who are trying to get elevators into houses, so they're very responsive when you're doing your own research. And then once we're you know part of the team, we all get together and we can start reaching out to elevator suppliers as well. Um, and obviously your contractor will have something to say about an elevator as well. They might have a supplier, like a go-to, that they use. Or, um, well, they may never have dealt with an elevator before because it's, it's more of a popular popular thing that's coming on board now versus versus maybe 10 years ago so yeah a couple of variables there i can't give you a specific price obviously because there's research to be done
1: yeah yeah thank you it's it, like a lot of things it's a bit of a complex answer but uh it's good to know that we're, we're thinking about it and that uh, people are thinking about it and that's something that we can start doing some more research on um, at this point, I actually would like to turn back to Stephanie, if I may. Stephanie, I want to put you in the hot seat for just a moment since we're on the topic of interior design. Um, if you're still with us, Stephanie, and you can yeah. unmute. All right. Um, as an interior designer who's studying, you're still in school right now, but um, I wanted to just hear from you, too. And maybe some of our clients would, would benefit from just hearing your take on uh, what's drawing you right now from an interior design perspective, like what's catching your eye or what's trending or what what are some things that maybe you would like our clients to know about in the the interior design world? I would love to get your take on it.
2: Yeah, um, I really think texture is a big thing right now. Um, So you see a lot of like wainscoting, paneling, um, crown molding. Uh, I don't know if crown molding will ever go out of style, it always kind of elevates the space. Um, And then kind of like what Meg said, a lot of like softer furniture like boucle chairs right now or like it's actually kind of hard to find like really good ones because those are just selling. Um, And then I was um, also seeing a lot of like wallpaper on ceilings, so if you don't have like the popcorn ceiling um it kind of again gives you texture but it is kind of so creative and new that a lot of people are starting to do that so um that's always fun and then um as far as like trending colors i think sherwin williams is really going um back to like sage green and uh coral is really big right now so we're kind of going a little bit to like 70s, which I'm here for. So, all right, um, not everyone's style. I'm um, definitely shag
1: carpeting and <laughs> a disco ball. Why not?
2: I mean, I'm here for shag carpeting. I don't know if everyone else is disco balls, all of it. <laughs> um, I'm very clever. Bring back some memories. If you can't tell by my background, I love um, going antiquing and thrifting and just kind of finding a lot of unique pieces. Um, but you never can go wrong with neutrals. It's always something that's going to be relaxing. A lot of people want their home to be the safe space. And so um, that's a really way, good way to go, too, is just creating as much zen um, as possible because yeah. we all live, you know, the day to day stresses. So, yeah, right. I think definitely earth tones will never go out of style.
1: For sure, they are soothing. That's awesome. Um, I want to touch on that texture, no pun intended, Want to touch on that texture <laughs> comment. Um, Meg, um, when uh, touching materials, it is such an important part of the process. How do we facilitate that? How can you help people who, who need to interact with materials?
0: Yeah, that goes back to going and picking out selections in person. Um, sometimes, like I'll take a client to a certain place, and it might not have everything we have on the mood board, but then they'll go and they'll see it in person and they'll see the texture of it and be like, Oh, I actually like that. So then I'll find a way yeah. to integrate into their home and to their mood boards. Um, and then just make sure that we can find a place for it. And I do think going and seeing the textures in person is a big, I think it's a big factor in deciding if that's something you want or not. Cause textures are so important in a space.
1: Yeah. Uh, I got two really good questions. John and Jit are giving us a lot to talk about, which is, Awesome. Thank you guys. Um, and this is an awesome question, John. Are there designs that are relatively timeless? I I, I love that because it comes up a lot, but um what has some staying power? And Stephanie, if you want to chime in too, but start with Meg.
0: Yeah, so when it comes to timeless, I've experienced this firsthand. Um, some every client thinks timeless is different. Like so I wouldn't really classify timeless as one thing because someone's timeless could be different than someone else's timeless. Um, yeah. And I've designed before what I thought was timeless and it didn't turn out to be what that my client thought was timeless. So I think it's just another back and forth with the client and making sure it's what they want and it's their idea of timeless. So I definitely, yeah. if you if that's what you're looking for is a timeless um, design and style, we can definitely work with that. And we can figure out what your timeless means. So. It's, it's a
1: tough one to nail down, isn't it? Because, yeah. um, but are there any are there any mainstay styles that you think are like a good template to to create around?
0: Yeah, I think definitely keeping those neutrals in there, um, and then just the more natural textures and all that is helpful with the, when it comes to timeless. Um, I think those are always yeah. stable pieces that will get that timeless feel. Um, obviously, we're not going to stick some super trendy wallpaper and um, like bright colors in there that want to be very timeless yeah. but um just making sure it's those earth tones and the neutrals that are go throughout the house so
1: well john was just saying that his uh fuzzy psychedelic wallpapers that's not timeless so that would probably be a passing <laughs> thing the, the beaded curtain and the incense i could just imagine the basement um stephanie do you want to take a stab at that about um any any things that are are timeless or um mainstays
2: um yeah we still see like the black and white checkerboard floor a lot like that number Uh, yeah seems like it's gone out of style it's not for everyone but it's just always um still coming up and then um probably like at least the look of marble um even if it is like a quartz Mm -hmm. or porcelain just kind of the the white with the usually like silver um veining and then um trying to think what else yeah really just like, like what you
1: said about crown, crown molding too like that, that yeah. seems like what it not, yeah <laughs>
2: yeah it really just makes everything look a little bit more expensive um and kind of same with that golden brass like it always kind of goes in and out but i feel like um yeah i think there's definitely some things but yeah just kind of sticking to the neutral palette you can't go wrong
1: what, what should you prefer ceramic tiles or hardwood is there Um, why would you recommend one or the other? If I could rephrase the question. Um, let's just talk about flooring, Meg, just walk us through different types of flooring. And even if you have like a quick pro con kind of thing and porcelain, I just saw that too. Yeah.
0: So I actually just talked to, uh, one of the clients that was on here about this. (laughs) Um, so LVP versus hardwood, I would say when LVP first came out, it did not look very great. It looked like plastic. Um, but now the technology it's become a lot better and it looks a lot more like real hardwood and it's a lot more durable um water resistant some of them are even um waterproof so i think if you're going for durability i would do lvp if you want um if you just want hardwood because you're very like i need hardwood in my house um then you can go that route but just know that it is more maintenance and there is um Like if you spill water on it, you have to pick it up like right away. So I think that's the difference. Even even
1: if it's, even if it's stained and sealed, right?
0: Yeah. It's still, you can't let leave water on there without it damaging. Um, and then when it comes to the tiles, uh, if I think you're probably referring to bathrooms when it comes to this, but you can also do porcelain tile throughout your, um, whole house. If you want, we actually have a few clients that like that and want that style. It's very modern, um, that's pretty durable too. I obviously would not put marble flooring down. Um, it's going to chip, it's going to stain, but when it comes to porcelain tiles, um, you could do that too. It's pretty durable as well. So
1: that's a good answer. What about sealed concrete? I've had people ask me about that. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I
0: I like it a lot. I think it's from my perspective, I think it's pretty cost effective. If you're doing a concrete slab, you can just acid wash it and seal it. Um, instead of laying another floor on top of that um but for like the basements i actually have a lot of clients especially in the area that we're doing talking rock and LJ and all those areas it gives that rustic feel as well so i think it's
2: a right. good way to do a basement floor
1: awesome great answers hi <laughs>
2: suzanne how are you hi i'm good i'm good um while you're on the topic of the floors i'm wondering yeah. like say in a bedroom um or or like a
0: formal living room is wall to wall uh carpet completely out. Like they're not using it. Is it better to put, um, like the LVP with the throw rug on top of it? Or do you sometimes use wall to wall? Cause right now I don't have wall to wall anymore in our house. It, I mean, in our, in our bedroom, but I do kind of miss, you know, getting up and having that cushy rug. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. I do still, we still see it. Sometimes I would say not as much. Um, a lot of people are doing the natural floors or LVP throughout their house and then doing a more plush rug if that's the feeling that you're wanting. But I still am doing it if someone wants it. We can – I'm doing a lot in bedrooms and, like, basements or loft areas. Um, So that's just a personal personal preference as well. Yeah.
1: And, James, would you like to speak to that question as
0: well?
3: When it comes to rugs, I think that's a really great solution because – instead of doing carpets throughout a whole room, you can obviously take a rug up, um, especially if it's in the summertime, so of things, that's great to keep you cooler in the wintertime. When it comes to expensive rugs, and um, Stephanie and Meg will will have to deal with these sort of aspects a lot of the time is, if you're spending like $10,000 on a rug, the warranty will also come with a requirement to have like a rug pad as well. So you'll have, it's not just the rug, it'll be the underlay and things like that that go with it as well. And that gives it a little bit of cushion. Um, and then when it comes to hard floors, when, when, when I think of tiles versus vinyl versus um, hardwood flooring, you also c- can consider what do you want it to feel like underfoot. When, when a lot of people want hardwood floorings, what they're actually requesting is that sprung feeling so when you're on a um, floor joists, and then you have hardwood floor over that, when you're walking, you'll feel it's not as hard as when you're walking on tile or concrete. So it comes with an expense. There's not just the look or cleaning it, the maintenance, but there's also something to consider there as well. When you have a um, a hardwood floor, you've also got the sprung floor that goes with it as well. So it gives you a little bit of bounce back. So if you're someone that gets affected by staying on concrete all day having a sprung floor actually helps with your ankles and your feet and your calves so you're not actually getting all that sort of sore
1: joint down there when you're walking around on on concrete all day so things to consider that way as well everybody i really enjoyed it Um, and y'all have a wonderful evening